Hello and welcome to our online Easter service. My name is Danae and I'm one of the pastors at Northview. We are so glad that you can join us today. If you've been joining us for a while, this service is going to look a little different than you're used to. Instead of one longer message from Pastor Jeff, he's broken his message into three parts. He will take us on a journey of how Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, experienced Jesus' death, resurrection, and he'll conclude with Peter being given a new calling. Within each of these three sections, we'll also be hearing testimonies from three people in our church, along with some powerful songs of worship. So let's begin. I grew up in a small uh, farming town called Melfort, Saskatchewan. I had a great childhood growing up in that little town. But as I got older, small town life just wasn't very fun. It just was a little boring. And so as I got older, I actually had an opportunity to model in Japan and that actually affected me quite a bit. It really changed the way I thought about myself and empowerment meant that if I was in control, um, I could do anything I wanted with my body and it wasn't going to affect my mind or my spirit. It was just a tool to be used and, and that was it. And kind of felt like the church and its rules just wanted to hold me back from having fun. So I just kind of ignored it. Actually, it was surprising how it got dark pretty quickly. And eventually at 19, I found myself pregnant and I didn't have any godly counsel in my life. I had no Christian friends. And even though I was going to church, I, I really didn't hear much of what um, was being said. And um, I definitely wasn't listening to my parents at that time. And so, um, so I made the choice to have an abortion. I remember that day so clearly. I was walking down the hallway following the nurse. I just kind of was filled with dread. I even thought, well, maybe God will send someone to stop me. I turned around thinking, if I see anyone in this hallway, I'll stop walking. I turned around and there was nobody there. <laughs> the hallway was completely dead. Like what was once a busy hospital hallway all of a sudden just became completely quiet. Um, so I knew then that it was my decision and mine alone. For the most part, I was able to just kind of shove any guilt or remorse or any emotion about it just kind of down, and I, I, didn't, I didn't want to think about it. Yeah, broken home, lived with my mom, and revolving door of different boyfriends and not great role models. And then went through a, a tough patch myself, um, you know, being in the wrong crowd and um, getting into lots of trouble and, you know, probably should have been, uh, you know, in jail or dead, to be honest. You know, so grateful that in my early 20s, um, met Andrea, my wife, and who had such a love for the Lord, and uh, saw past any of the rough edges that I had, and straight to to who I was inside, and and uh, yeah, the, the rest was history from there. I think the first time I drank, I was like seven. Yeah, I just there was a beer sitting there, and my grandpa was watching a movie, and I drank it, and then again when I was like fourteen, I. Would skip out of school and start drinking and and then when I was like 18 I started doing cocaine and I got sober when I was 21 and met my husband and had a couple children and tried to keep it together and just the childhood pain and and the responsibility of kids and bills and that I just I, I just couldn't do it and so I reverted back to drinking and cocaine and and then I started doing heroin at 23 and um, my life became unmanageable really quick and I 
could see that I couldn't look after my kids, so I phoned my parents and said, you know, can you please help me with these kids? And I sold everything and just moved to Surrey on the street. And I, and I continued to live on the street for like 35 years on and off. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is uh, Peter, mostly because I can see myself in him. Uh, if you ever follow his story, you'll probably see yourself in him as well. He is both a tragedy and a victory kind of at the same time. The first time that Jesus ever comes across Peter is when Peter's in a fishing boat and he's uh, off the shore and he's been fishing all night. And he has been trying his hardest to bring all the fish in, but he can't get anything that evening. And so Jesus in the boat with him says, why don't you go out and we'll, we'll put down uh, our nets for a little while. And Peter's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I've been doing this all night. It's fine that you, Rabbi, got into the boat to talk to these people on the shore because there's so many of them, but I'm the fisherman here. Well, he says, okay, you know, he's going to honor the rabbi. They go out a little ways and Peter starts putting the nets in out of duty, probably obligation, wanting to be polite to this, this good rabbi. And before you know it, all these fish are jumping into the nets. In fact, they're, it looks like they're so excited they want to jump into the boat. He has to call all of his friends over, Peter does, so that they can get all of this catch. So after having nothing all night, they all of a sudden get this massive catch. And it occurs to Peter, right in the middle of that, that the guy who's in his boat, who told him to get out here, this rabbi, is something different. So he turns to Jesus and he says, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful man, knowing he's in the pres presence of something very holy. Jesus tells him, okay, from now on, you're going to fish, you're going to fish men and women. All that begins their, their relationship. Uh, Peter becomes one of the chief leaders of the disciples. Whenever there's a discussion uh, about the, the core group of disciples, uh, there are 12 in total, but then you've got these three, Peter, James, and John, who kind of go with Jesus everywhere. And Peter's kind of the leader. He's the one who uh, speaks up when nobody else wants to speak up. He says the things that the group is, is thinking. And that comes to uh, fruition in some weird places. Like uh, on one occasion, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to He's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. Now, Peter knows that that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so he pulls Jesus aside, you know, because they're, they're close, they're tight, the two leaders of this gang. And so he says to Jesus, look, you don't get it, Jesus. The way the Messiah is supposed to act is he's supposed to come. He's supposed to free us from the Romans. He's going to be a military leader and he can't go around very well being a military leader saying, hey, guys, we're going to lose and I'm going to die. So, I don't know, Jesus, maybe you could be a little more positive. Jesus says this famous line there. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. He compares Peter to, to Satan in this, in this moment. He turns to the disciples and he says, if you, if you want to follow me, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. He likes to speak up for everybody. Say the hard thing. Ask the difficult question. And because he's so vocal about his feelings, uh, we're not surprised at the end of the Gospels where Peter ends up saying stuff like, Jesus, everyone else is going to depart from you here. 
like all of these other disciples. I understand when you say that you're going to be left alone and maybe go to the cross, but I will never be that guy. I will never be the one who turns my back on you. I will always be on your side. Anything can come at us, but it's the two of us together. Of course, time comes, Jesus gets arrested. And in the book of John, you have this weird kind of movie scene going on where in the courtyard, you have Peter who's followed the the people who arrested Jesus. You have him standing around a, a fire and up in a room in a nearby building, you have Jesus. And it's like the camera pans to Peter, then to Jesus and back to Peter. And the point in all of it is look at the comparison. So when John does that, this is how, this is how it reads. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, and because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The, the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, no, no. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Camera pans up now. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Pan down to Peter. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? But again, Peter denied. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. You know, Peter is horribly faithless, while Jesus is terrifically faithful. And isn't that the state with all of us? We are failures.
As we started to transition into having kids, one of the things I found myself saying to our oldest a lot was God was the most important thing, God was the most important thing. And, and interesting enough was she caught this before I did, was how far God was actually down on my list, right? Because it was like, hey, we go to church if a football game's not. We go to church if we're not on vacation, right? It was sort of this second or third thing down on the list or even further at times. And so she started to question that at a young age and say, you know, Dad, you, you say that this is the most important thing, yet we skip out when other things that you perceive to be more important uh, are there. Day, spring, come in your wisdom, save us from ourselves, maybe even a year after the abortion, I just hit rock bottom. The decisions I was making were not bringing me the joy that I hoped it would. Instead of feeling empowered, I felt kind of beat up and used. Instead of feeling free, I felt just chained and, and trapped. At the same time, we'd been hit by some stuff that financially hit us pretty hard. And I'll be honest, I didn't pray a lot unless I needed something, kind of the genie in the bottle mentality. And I was sitting there praying, and I was just, I was so frustrated, right? Because in my mind, I was looking at like, I'm a good person, which is so silly, because we're not. And 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 why why me? And, and in this, you know, God gave me this unveiling of like, you're so upset because your identity is so wrapped up in, your, your finances is so wrapped up in your identity and business, is so wrapped up in all the wrong things and not in me. What did I think God thought about me? Yeah, I just, I didn't feel deserving. Even though I knew in my heart there was God and that He loved me, I couldn't accept it. Like, I just couldn't accept it. As soon as Jesus goes to the cross, Peter is nowhere to be found. He just disappears like the rest of the disciples. Probably regrets his failure, recognizes that what Jesus said about him was, was true. It's difficult to face up to that kind of thing. 
your errors, your failures, your weaknesses. It's difficult to stare them down. And so he didn't. He took off. But three days later, he's up in the upper room with these other disciples, probably hiding from the authorities. And um, Mary, one of the female disciples, she, she shows up at the door. And she's all excited and she says, listen, we were, we were at the tomb and we went there to anoint the body and to finish what was begun before the Sabbath. And when we got there, the stone was rolled away. There was an angel there and he, and he said that Jesus is not there. You can understand the spark of excitement that would come into the hearts of the disciples because they had heard Jesus promise this. Maybe they just didn't take it seriously, but... Now all of a sudden there's this spark of hope. So John and Peter especially, they take off running. John likes to include in his gospel that he outran Peter to the tomb, got there first, and then Peter came behind him. But whereas John stood at the doorway and didn't go into the tomb, Peter does. He boldly thrusts himself into the tomb and he sees that the grave clothes are just laying there. The stone had been, been rolled back. There are no guards anywhere. It's, it's a miracle. He just doesn't know where Jesus went. Did he rise? Or did somebody steal a body? He doesn't really know what to make of it. And so he and some of his other fishing buddies, they, they go back fishing. And they're out in their fishing boats, much like they were when Jesus first met them. And they didn't get any catch that night. And then there's a stranger who shows up on the beach and he yells out to them, why don't you throw your nets out on the other side? Those are words that Peter had heard before, oddly. And so he does it. And of course, the same thing happens that happened before. The fish are jumping into the net and jumping into the boat. They're so excited, but Peter doesn't bother with the fishing. He looks to the shore and he realizes this is Jesus. So without, without doing anything, he just boldly jumps into the water. He's supposed to take everything off, but he doesn't matter. He runs or swims all the way to the, to the, the shore. He arrives, arrives at the shore and, and it's Jesus. And Jesus said, why don't you come have breakfast with me? They ate fish. It was over a fire. And it was at that moment that Jesus decided that he was going to revisit Peter's failure when they had finished eating in John chapter 21, verse 15, uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You do remember, of course, that that was Peter's claim. Everybody else will leave you, not me. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Well, then feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. You can imagine those, that moment. The memory comes rushing back into the man's head. 
about what happened the last time they sit over a fire and three questions were asked of him. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know, restoration hurts. It requires you to stare straight in the eye of your failure, to make no excuses, to own it. And then the joy comes. The knowledge that the God who you have wronged is not standing there ready to bash you over the head. He, he is the God of the prodigal, the one who's been scanning the horizon all this time, waiting for his child to come home. And at the first glimpse, he runs to him. He runs to you. He runs to me. All he is waiting for is an admission of guilt and a seeking of mercy. And it's the people who seek mercy, who pound their chest, like the great tax collectors, not the Pharisees who stand in front of the temple and say, I done nothing wrong. I'm great and better than all these others, like Peter had said. It's, it's the tax collectors, it's the sinners, it's the ones who acknowledge their failure and who need the forgiveness of God, who pound their chest and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's those who receive the promised forgiveness. And oh, what joy follows that. So I finally got to the point where I was willing to just submit my life to God and to God's will for my life. At that point, my life really started to change. I started to seek His will in every decision that I was making. Things started to open up in my mind as far as hearing God speak to me. And um, He was able to do that through um, His Word, through preachers and teachers, um, through worship music, through nature. And I was just starting to see God more and more. When I was on that journey, I met my husband Leland, and a few years later, he decided to have a baby. When I was 17 weeks, I had a miscarriage, and we didn't even know until we delivered that we were having twins. I just remember feeling so conflicted about how I could acknowledge the life and death of those children, but not acknowledge the life and death of the child that I had aborted. And um, it was in those moments that I just really had to come face to face with the decision that I had made and the, and the sin. And I think that I really wouldn't have understood how much I had been forgiven had I not gone through that experience. And, um, and those were some of my darkest days and yet um, I felt God's presence with me more than I had ever felt before. The importance that I have realized about being in His Word and how little I did it and how little I lived for Him. And being in the Word helped me see that. He really opens our eyes and hearts through, through His Word, through truth. He has shown me that I was living for myself and my kingdom versus shifting to living for Him and His kingdom. I was in hell, like I was like 120 pounds, I had no teeth and, and I was dying. 
It was a Thursday night and I phoned my nephew and asked him to bring his dog over so I could babysit his dog and maybe it could cheer me up for a little bit. So he brought the dog and um, he told me he was gonna pick the dog up Monday morning and Sunday night I prayed. I said, God, I can't do this no more help. And I had no idea that I, to go to treatment or what I was gonna do and I actually woke up the next morning and I had uh, went to the drugstore, bought a needle and phoned my drug dealer and my kids were both out of the country and that was it, I was just gonna do myself in and kill myself. So my nephew picked up the dog and I asked him for a ride to Langley and um, on the way to Langley I said, can you drop me off at the Alano Club? And that's where they have AA meetings and it was 12.30 and, and I actually walked in and there was one chair, the room was packed and I sat down and I looked beside me and it was my friend Stryker, who's a Christian friend of mine who's been clean for like 30 years. And um, he said, do you need help? And I said, yeah, I do. I slept on his couch and got into Glory House the next day and I don't know what happened but I knew that God had my back. Like I knew I was going to kill myself and God saved me like one more time and I was like I need to do something. It, it was nothing short of a miracle. Like absolutely. Like I had no intention of, of anything but it was I know it was from the prayer the night before and I thought this is going to work this time. And I've been 28 months clean, yeah. It's not me. <laughs> you carried the cross upon your back Bleeding until your final breath Tears of blood, a crown of thorns You gave it all, my sins you
you expect uh, Jesus' words to Peter to end with, feed my sheep. You know, these, these three statements, these three questions that precede the statements. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He's, he's brought Peter to restoration. That's usually the way it ends, right? You, you're restored. But it's not the case, actually, in John's gospel. You, you get a little bit more. Peter fails. He's restored. And then he's called. And that happens in John 21, verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. When you, when you were younger, Peter, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. But Peter turned and he saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Like, yeah, okay, I'm going to stretch my hands out and go where I don't want to go. This is probably going to be a sign of the way I'm going to die. But what, what about this guy? I mean, if I'm going to face that, then shouldn't he face something similar? But Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Do you know the way that discipleship works? This is a word we use in Christianity to talk about following Jesus. It's not just that Jesus saves us. He calls us to a life of, of followership, of discipleship, of becoming a learner, a protege, somebody who walks in his footsteps after him. The way it works in most cases when we sign an agreement or a contract is that we get the contract, they give it to us, and we look at all of the little details in it, right? Read the fine print, our parents told us. Don't ever sign your life away. Don't ever do anything like that because you might come back to regret it. But the way it works with following Jesus is that he gives you the contract and there's not a whole lot on it. Just says, follow me. And then you sign at the bottom and then through our lives, he fills in the pieces. And that sometimes when he fills in those pieces, we push back. We want to say, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I want. Why am I dealing with this situation and they're dealing with that situation? Why is it that my following Jesus involves suffering and pain and heartache and that person's involves driving a better car? We love to make those comparisons. We understand what it's like to be Peter here, looking at John after Peter hears about his own future, the challenges of it. We we understand what it's like to point out the other disciple and say, I want to be more like him. But that's not the way following Jesus works. It's, it is an act of surrender. It's a giving of ourselves to him and saying, whatever it is that you have for me in the days ahead, I am yours. We offer ourselves, as the book of Romans says, as living sacrifices. Do you know, a few weeks ago, I... Um, 
shared with the congregation at Northview that uh, I, I had a trial in my life. And by trial, I don't mean like a difficult situation, even though it was a difficult situation. Like mean a literal trial. I was on trial for what they called fourth degree assault. What that actually means is that if I were walking down the street and I bumped into somebody and they wanted to sue me or hold me accountable in a court of law, they could go to the police and say, that person bumped into me deliberately and they assaulted me. There's a rule on the books in the United States that says that they can press charges against me. Usually doesn't happen. But I was a counselor at a Christian camp, and one week we had a bunch of kids who were super rambunctious and a lot of wrestling and goofing around and headlocks and all sorts of things. And one of those kids, several months later, said in, uh, in laughing and joyful moment with his other friend, he said, remember when we went to camp and we got headlocks and we were goofing around all the time and remember I got, you know, my head got hurt and I, you know, I had bruises on this part. So his mother was listening and she was like, what happened at camp? He told her more, exaggerating many of the details and then eventually she went to the police who then interviewed me and they said, no, it's not a big deal. I remember going into the, into the office of the detective and the lady was like, oh, no, it's no big deal. But I sat with the light, you know, shining down on me. And I told her what happened. Yeah, it was just a lot of wrestling. This is what happens at camp and stuff like that. I corroborated most of what the kids said about that, that week. And then a month later, I found out that I was being charged with fourth-degree assault. And I needed to go to court. So get a lawyer. We go to court. The jury that we had to select to listen to the arguments. I knew that I was innocent of what it is that they were saying. I knew it. They offered me a plea bargain. Hey, if you just go to jail for a year, we'll, we'll agree to you know, reduce the charge or we don't need to go to court. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So we went through the whole trial. If I lost, it was gonna be three years in prison. $15,000 fine. I remember when the jury went out, my lawyer came up to me and he said, listen, I don't know how well this is going to go, but we've got grounds for appeal. It's just not what you want to hear your lawyer say. And that's when I sat in the room. My friend Eric was there and he had his arm around me and we were talking for a minute and I looked around at all the friends and others who were there, thankful that they had come. And in my heart, in that moment, I remember saying to God, if this is what your plan for me is in the days ahead, so be it. If you want me to be in prison, if you want to be, me to be a, a Christian there, so be it. And if you want me to not do that, which of course God is my heart, then so be it. It was one of the only times in my life that I had fully surrendered my hands open to God and said, I am yours. Let it be to me as you have said. And I can't tell you the joy. I don't think you and I were built to make big decisions about where we're supposed to go or how we're supposed to be compared in our discipleship with somebody else. I, th I think we're made to be in the hands of God. 
In fact, I think that the biggest issue in our lives really comes down to the presence or absence of an apostrophe. We are either gods or we are gods. We are either going our own way, saying that we're the ones who run our lives in this universe, worried about how everything's going to work out, constantly fretting and fearing and trying to control our situations, gods in our own making, or we're gods. We belong to him. We open our hands and we say, we are yours no matter what. It is that kind of followership to which Jesus calls us. So which are you? Gods or gods? You're the Alpha and Omega, the start and end. Born a baby and a savior, you entered in to the world that you created and suffered in our places. The highest king of heaven on a wooden cross. And you alone, you alone are worthy of praise. And you alone, you alone, there's no greater name. Jesus, you turn on hell. Jesus, you overcame. And you alone are worthy of praise. As we went through this journey, we uh, prayed a lot about, you know, what, what's our purpose look like for our family uh, and our businesses? And our purpose really came down to, to serve, love, and know God with everything we have. And, and it's bolded on our chalkboard wall, everything, right? I just, yeah, every day just look at the grace that He constantly has extended to us, even though we don't deserve it. From that empty words and I just can't even express like how grateful I am for what he did for me like it's just what do you say like it just gratitude right living gratitude every day gratitude that I wake up in the morning gratitude that I have two legs and gratitude my family forgives me you're not a breathless body you're the living God you're not a stone cold statue you have a beating heart You're not a broken promise You're the risen one Never been defeated You're the champion Never been defeated You're the champion 
Now, you know, I, I work in recovery and, and I get to love women back to life. And um, like, that's my passion. I just love the transformation that God did, has done in my life. And it doesn't matter how far down the scale you've gone, like, He, he will change your life if you allow it. to express it. It is amazing how God can use such terrible things that have happened in our lives or that we've even inflicted and He can use them for our good and His glory. And I knew that by sharing my story that it would probably help someone. And if you've already done something or just have a lot of regret and shame in your life that it can be forgiven, that God's infinitely capable of taking on our sin. and. Um, and that the price has already been paid and that you have been forgiven, all you have to do is ask and it's an amazing thing. So much for joining us today. We hope the service was encouraging and inspiring. If you'd like prayer to speak with a pastor or learn more about any of our ministries here at Northview, we'd love to hear from you. You can do that by filling out a connect card on our website. We hope you have a great weekend. Happy Easter. He is risen.